Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 42 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and right across the table from me is my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How you doing, Dave? Doing just great, Jeff. We're recording in the evening here in the Ad Nauseam. It's a, it's a, which brings a different vibe. It's twilight vibe. Twilight vibe to the vomitorium, right? That's right. So uh, anything could happen. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going to start us off with our shout out. Yes, is that right? Our shout out goes to uh, one Mike Pastor who comes from, uh, lives in North San Diego, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, he's an avid listener of the podcast. Uh, he has a, a long-time, long-standing interest in the classical world, um, going back to his youth. His uh, He told us that his grandmother used to read him versions of the Greek myths. This is what I, I really like about him. He, he watched uh, uh, Jason the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, and I, I got to believe that's the 1981 Clash of the Titans. The claymation. The claymation No one, doubt. Right, which sucked him in, as it as did me, and has a, just a long-standing fascination with the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, I yeah. loved this quote that he sent us. Yeah. After years of fighting against it, so as not to crown myself nerdy, I did take up learning Latin about a year ago. Feels, mm. feels right to me. And then he throws in some nice words about uh, my Latin per diem videos on YouTube. We, yeah. don't, we don't have to uh, reference those, although yeah. I just did. <laughs> You mentioned it by not mentioning it. Correct. Right? A little Praetor Itio. Praetor Itio, right. And no, that's interesting that did, when I took Latin back in, I started taking it in high school, but I never really had the sense that it was it was nerdy. I mean, I've come to recognize that, you know, that's there's a nerdy, there's kind of a nerd cred thing attached to the classes. But did, when you started, uh, you know, studying this, did, did, was that, oh, well, I got to accept the, the crown of nerdity. Definitely not. Okay. No, yeah. I, I was more... Self-aware, I guess, about the level of nerdiness. You just slipped right into it, uh, unaware. Is I, it's true. I, I think I just came to that, kind of realized that later. I think, mm-hmm. well, I always, I also played Dungeons and Dragons. Nope. Didn't do that. Didn't do that. And, and which, of course, now is, I mean, that's even more nerdy than, than, than Latin. Oh, the, the two go together. It's retro. That's why. It's very retro. But when, in, when I was doing it, I said, like, oh, this is, this is cool. Look at these dice with the 36 sides to them, right? <laughs> but I realized now, looking back, okay, yeah, full on nerd. You were deep in, Winkle. I was deep. I, I didn't start Latin until I was 20, so very late. Oh, right. That's right. I forgot about quite, that. Quite late. So and you were very self-aware. You knew what you were getting into. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I was. I know, there's no turning back. You go through the door, you know, marked nerd above. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that's it. That's it. Yeah. All right. So yeah. how would we say that? Janus tultorum, dies et noctes patet. You know, the door of nerds stands open night and day. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you got the opening quote, Jeff, I, I think. Do. Yes. This comes from an article entitled Philemon and Baucus in Ovid's Metamorphoses by one Alan Griffin. I uh, wrote this back in 1991. Uh, here's the quote. Where did Ovid find the Philemon Baucus tale? It first appears in the Metamorphoses and no other classical author tells the story. A comment by E.J. Kenny can provide a starting point for a discussion of its background. On to a folktale originating apparently in Asia Minor, he, Ovid, has grafted a literary motif inherited through Callimachus from Homer, the reception of a great personage in a humble dwelling. Hmm. So I think that we're going to get around to the, the, the Philemon Balkis story in our discussion today. It's fascinating to me that this is uh, a famous tale. Well, I'm, I'm, guess, I'm guessing our listeners, many of them will have heard it 
or version of it before, but it only shows up one time in antiquity in Ovid's Metamorphoses and, and nowhere else. Yes, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So to, to trace out that quote just a little bit, because yep. there are a lot of names packed in there. Right. Uh, Callimachus, the Alexandrian poet, gets the literary motif from Homer, which is the reception of a great personage in a humble dwelling. Mm. So this takes us to Odysseus and Eumaeus. Yes. So right. book 14 of the Odyssey. Right. And uh, I think you said to me last week, uh, in reference to our staggering numbers that we're getting for downloads. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Staggering for us, a little nerdy <laughs> classics podcast. People are catching on and catching up. Yes. So they're listening to, that's the catchphrase, by the way. <laughs> Catching on, catching up. T-shirt coming soon. That's right. They're yeah. listening to the Odyssey and they're learning book 14, Odysseus, the uh, important person in the humble dwelling of Eumaeus. Right. right. So that idea is, is just a literary motif, comes to Callimachus, Ovid picks up on it, but Ovid, like you said, is the only person who tells the story of these two individuals, mm-hmm. Baucus and Philemon, Philemon and Baucus, yeah. and that's the metamorphoses. Yep. Now, why is that important, Jeff, to today's episode? We're talking about uh, this passage from the book of Acts, uh, Acts uh, 14, where Paul and Barnabas uh, show up in town. And uh, long story short, we'll get to the long story. Uh, they are mistaken by the townspeople as being Zeus and Hermes in disguise. And it strikes a really interesting parallel with this story um, of the gods coming down in disguise and being taken in by uh, the, the elderly couple, Baucus and Philemon. And so Ovid has written this, his version of it just a, f- a few scant decades before it shows up in um, Acts of the Apostles. Right. So probably, I don't know, 10 AD, perhaps, is yeah. about the time he's writing the right. Metamorphoses, most likely, maybe a little bit before uh, 5 AD, right around the you know the turn of the epoch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the events of Acts 14 are somewhere in the early 50s. Okay. So we've got, a, like you say, just a few scant decades. Right. Now, there's not going to be any suggestion, at least on my part, because I don't think it's defensible. There's not going to be any suggestion that Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, is copying the story. No. There's no indication whatsoever. No. no. Uh, And I believe it's an historical account. But it is a striking echo because it occurs in the same region. Exactly. That's what I find so fascinating. As Griffin says in in the quote there, that the the folktale seems to originate in Asia Minor. Yes. Um, right in the same region where we see Paul and Barnabas traveling. That's right. So when we get to the end of the episode, three, four hours from now, we finally <laughs> wound, <clears throat> wind it down, put a bow on top, you might say. Yeah. We're going to look at some of the interpretive possibilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually we're just going to have to leave the listener, you know, to make up uh, his or her own mind on some of these points. That's right. Because we don't have enough evidence. They can see things that aren't there on their own. <laughs> exactly. Right? It's time that the audience did some work, yeah, frankly. I'm, I'm tired of carrying the heavy lifting. You are too. What, so. what are we on now? Number 42? 42. And every week we see things that aren't there. That's right. And where, where's, where's the listener? Where That's are they going right. to kick it in? It's yeah. time for them to step up their game. Let's do it. All right. So as we approach Acts 14, we have to do some preliminary work. We do. We need to present to the audience a possible way to understand the intersection of the classical world and the world of the New Testament. Right. Now, obviously, in a podcast of 50 minutes or so, we're not going to be able to cover this in detail, but it would be irresponsible, Winkle, irresponsible to just drop the listener down in Acts 14. That's very true. And not talk about this a little bit. Right, right. I mean, I would say, the big statement for me would be that you can't fully understand 
a a book like Acts or really any of the books of the of what we call the New Testament without a grounding in the culture, language, philosophy, history, theology of the Greco-Roman world. Exactly. Yeah. As a Christian myself, I take it as axiomatic that the incarnation of Christ, born at the time he was, was not an accident. Right. It was providentially arranged. So we've talked about this before, and you know, I say it uh, unashamedly, the Greco-Roman world for Christians, which isn't all of our audience, of course, uh, but the Greco-Roman world will always hold a privileged place because if you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to know something about the world around the New Testament. Right. And for me, too, that was in, in, in being drawn to the study of, of this discipline. For me, that was a big part of it. Yes. Was to, was to get a better grounding and, and understanding of all of, that, uh, of all of that literature. Yes. And I think people often misunderstand that when you say it deserves a privileged place, that you're saying something about the moral quality mm. of the person's being studied, which emphatically I'm not saying. Right. In other words, I'm not saying that the writings of Plato and Homer and Aristotle and Demosthenes and so forth, that these people were better than other people all around the world. No. Or even that their literature was better. Right. Um, it's possible, of course, to make, you know, um, gradations and uh, evaluative statements about different qualities of literature. Mm -hmm. But the other literatures of the world, A, I don't really know. And uh, some of the cultures, their literature, unfortunately, did not survive. Right. So they, they can't be evaluated, really. Right. And appreciated. Exactly. I, I always, uh, along the same lines, I always explain in terms of influence. Like, mm -hmm. you, may, you may despise Homer, but there's no, there's no arguing with the influence that he's had across the century. So if you want to understand how this came out of that, you have to understand Homer. Or to use, uh, as, as both of us like to do, a classic rock example. I'm not a huge, Please Led, do. Ze I'm not a huge Led Zeppelin fan, but you can't understand the arc of rock music without an appreciation for an understanding of who Led Zeppelin was. Yeah. They were deeply influential and you can't dismiss that just you, you, because you happen not to like them. Right. Yeah. I knew you'd find a way to get Zeppelin into this episode. <laughs> That's right. I was trying to get the lead out. There you go. Yeah. Now that was a dad joke. Ooh, that, oh, yeah, I'm, talking, I'm talking to the king cringy across the table wingle. here. The king. So for Christians, the Greco-Roman world will always hold a privileged place. Yes. And one of the implications, not to go too deep into this, because we could spend a long time on it, but one of the implications is that some persons in a given Christian community, not necessarily all, some persons have to make this their area of expertise yeah. or else everyone else is impoverished. Uh, yeah, exactly right. You know, imagine, you know, living in a community where you don't have someone who knows how to clean teeth, who you don't have someone who knows how to build houses. You don't have someone who knows how to, you know, run a grocery store, whatever it is. Right. A community has to have people of different skills. Right. So in the Christian community, somebody has to know the Greco-Roman world or everybody's not going to be able to understand the scriptures properly. It would be like they were at the bottom of a cave staring at a wall and seeing yeah. shadows cast <laughs> upon it from an unknown light source. I love the uh, <laughs> reference to Plato's cave yeah. more than I like the reference to Led Zeppelin. Okay, All I, right. I'll accept that. Did they do a song on uh, Plato's cave? They, they might have. They did lots of kind of weird mythy stuff. Did they do it's that 14-minute uh, Achilles cover? It's it's dreadful. Yeah. I mean, I, I tip my hat for the, for the reference uh, to the classical world, but... It's unlistenable. And is it, it's a great effort, though. It, it's an effort. Okay. Right. <laughs> so you've got to understand something about the Greco-Roman world. So, yep. to, so to begin with um, Luke, right? Luke the evangelist, Luke the great physician, as he's called, companion of Paul. There's a turning point uh, in the book of Acts. I want to send the listeners 
to do some research, right? We said they're going to have to work harder. Homework. Yep. There's a certain point in the Acts of the Apostles, I won't tell you which chapter and verse, but find it, where all of the sudden the first person plural is used in the Greek. Hmm. Up until that point, Luke is describing the church in Jerusalem, you know, first Christ's ascension, church in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter's doing these things with John, healing of the, the, uh, the beggar, and then the conflict of the Sanhedrin. Then Paul is introduced, his conversion in, in chapter 9. It's all in uh, third person. You know, he did this, they did that, so forth. All of a sudden, Luke says, and then we, you got a first person. So what's that tell you? He joined the team. Luke joined the team. Yeah. Right? We don't know exactly where. There's lots of speculation, lots of uh, important hypotheses. But Luke joined the team at one point. Right. So I want the listeners to find out where that is. That's their, their trivia, so to speak, Yeah. Uh, for yeah. this week. But also at the beginning of his gospel... Luke is very emphatic to set the historical stage, right? He says, when Caesar Augustus was emperor, during the reign of Quirinius, the governor of Syria, so on and so forth, there was a census. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't date the incarnation of Christ any more specifically than Luke did, mm -hmm. other than drawing a, a map, or drawing a chart, putting down some, some you know, numerals, you couldn't have dated it more precisely. Right. He's really working on the historical side of what he's doing. Right. And the same is true in the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is working hard to connect these different events. And it's often been said, um, you know, it begins, the, the, the Acts of the Apostles begin with events in Jerusalem and they end in Rome. Hmm. And as this, there's this trajectory. Paul's heading toward Rome. And the, the book ends in chapter 28 with Paul in chains in Rome, living in his own house at his own expense, speaking freely. That's right. In an academic sense or an academic language, the books written by Luke are often referred to as Luke Acts. That's right. right. It's a, it's a, there are companion pieces. Yes. Yep. Because he begins the second work by saying, in my former work, yeah, exactly. Theophilus, right? Mm -hmm. So they're a, you know, they're a doublet. And there's some evidence that the length of each of them, the length of the gospel and the length of the history, the Acta Apostolorum, is determined by standard scroll length. Oh, yeah. So when he got to the end of the scroll, <laughs> he stopped. Yeah. Now, again, as an Orthodox Christian, I believe this was done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. but is also the act of a, you know, the, the work of a human being. And well, he got to the end and he stopped. Exactly. Paper's expensive, too. It was. <laughs> it was scarce. <laughs> right. And so that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon to my mind. Yeah. That's just where you end. So we know very little about Paul other than what's here or there in his letters. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 gives us the, the end of Paul's life, really. Um, but there's a lot we would really like to know and don't. Right. I mean, there's there's traditions about Paul that he was um, highly educated, right? He had the best education that was available for someone of his of his class and religion. Yeah. Right. Is it Gamaliel? Is his teacher? That's right. Right. He was from Tarsus. We know that. Which would be kind of southern, what we call Turkey today. Yes. Yeah. And we should say a few things about Tarsus because it is very important. It was one of the um, most important university towns of the East, mm. and Tarsus was famous for Stoicism. Right. And so there are definite Stoic references throughout Paul's work. Now, over the centuries, this has been poured over, ink has been spilled, you know, by the, by the barrel full over whether uh, Paul is borrowing from Stoicism, mm -hmm. he's copying, he's stealing, his ideas are unique or they're not, they're forged and so forth. A lot of that is, to my mind, highly speculative and fairly pointless. Mm. You know, trying to track down who may have influenced Paul, that's valuable. Yeah. But uh, saying that he's simply copying, that doesn't seem in keeping with the spirit of what Paul's trying to do himself. No, to me either. I mean, Paul, he never mentions 
you know, Plato or Zeno no. by name. Um, and so there's always going to be this question, like how much of the, the classics did, did Paul know? I mean, right. Was that part of his training? Would that have been a part of a training of a Jew? A student of the law. Uh, right. Probably not. Probably not, too. But, but Tarsus being what it was and where it was, you know, I think a lot of these ideas were simply in the water, yes. right? in the air. It's, a, it's the same way in which, or it's similar, I should say, uh, to the way in which people today are constantly quoting Shakespeare but aren't realizing that they're doing so. Right. When you say every dog has his day, right? You're quoting Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that it comes from that. A stitch in time. You know, maybe that's not Shakespeare. I don't know. But uh, all of these phrases, right, have an origin. Many of them have an origin in Shakespeare or some other English poet. Right. And uh, if our works were to be read, our conversations, our letters were to be read hundreds of years from now, scholars could mistakenly identify one of us as schooled in one of these English poets when, in fact, we're just quoting something that's in the air. Yeah. I've had students ask when, um, you know, like, say, a quote from Sophocles pops up, you know, 300 years after Sophocles. How could that, how could that be? How would people know that? Mm -hmm. But you think about, you know, popular culture functions in the same kind of way. Mm -hmm. People quote from movies while realizing they're quoting from movies. You yeah, know? too much, too, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, it, it, it becomes has, trite. It becomes, it, it can become very trite, but that's one of the ways that these things get, get their hooks in a culture and it just becomes part of the, of the parlance. Right, so the, you know, the famous episode in Acts uh, which chapter is it where he's in Athens? 17. 17. Yeah, on Mars Hill. And he's he's quoting to the Areopagus quotes from, from Greek poets. Yeah, Eratus. Erat, right. Yeah, yeah, his phenomena. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, was that something that Paul knew as from a schoolboy? Did somebody kind of slip him a, a note card? Hey, you might want right. to work, work this in. I um, think it's probably the former. Yeah. So uh, my own opinion, I can't really defend it because there isn't evidence. But my own opinion is that some of the things Paul quotes, he probably was familiar with. And I, I argue for this, um, I mean, personally, directly familiar with. Mm -hmm. I argue just by analogy, right? What's an educated man of his era going to know about certain things that are popular at the time? Yeah. So, I don't know. You're an educated person, right? You keep up with current affairs to some extent. You're probably not going to quote something to an audience that you haven't researched a little bit. Right, right, right. It doesn't mean you are an expert in, say, Middle Eastern politics, but you're probably not going to throw out, you know, hopefully, you're not going to throw out opinions on the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict without having done a little bit of research. Of course. Right? So, so why would Paul, mm -hmm. you know, presume to speak about Stoicism, Eratus, the phenomena, Epicurean doctrine, um, he, he certainly wasn't any stupider, no. in, you know, than the educated person today. And the opposite is probably the case. He probably was better educated, more responsible. Right. And so when he's talking about these things, I think he should be given the benefit of the doubt. It's based on at least some firsthand knowledge. Agreed. Yeah. When I, I read his letters, he strikes me as a as as a polymath, right, and someone also who's very quick on his feet, right, and he can he can bring things, um, you know, in in very sticky situations, and um, you know, drop these bombs, mm -hmm. and that and none more so than in, in Act Seventeen, where he's in front of this, he he knows his audience, he knows it's a hostile audience, yes, and he's prepped, he's he's prepped, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more, Jeff, about a couple of uh, interesting incidents in the New Testament 
where we see Paul's knowledge of the classical world. Yeah, please. Uh, before we get to Acts 14. Well, for example, in Romans chapter 2, there's a famous passage in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and following, where Paul is comparing the Jews' notion of the Mosaic law, their knowledge of the Mosaic law, and how that renders them without excuse, right, before mm -hmm. uh, God. And he's comparing that to the Gentile notion. So he says, those who don't have the law, meaning the Mosaic law, they do by nature what the law requires, right? The Mosaic law or the, the natural law. They show that the, the law is written on their hearts, hmm. right? So in that context, this is the argument that I make. And the audience doesn't have to accept it. It's, it's difficult to prove, but I think it's highly suggestive. When Paul's talking about those uh, Gentiles who have the moral law written on their hearts, whom does he have in mind? I think he has in mind persons like Sophocles in particular, mm. and Plato and Demosthenes, right? These pagan authors who are constantly, and Cicero, if we're going to you know, draw from the Romans, going on and on about right and wrong, mm -hmm. right? Plato, what's Plato about? Well, what's the moral thing to do? What's the ethical thing to do? Uh, in the Crito, is it right to obey an unjust law or should you Shawshank Redemption style <laughs> sneak away from authority, right? Endless fascination with ethics. Yeah. Aristotle's the same way. Cicero, on and on, these ethical quandaries and so forth. It would be what, in the, to use kind of reformed Christian language, what, these were writers imbued with common grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had a strong sense of right and wrong. Right. So when Paul says uh, they have the law written on their hearts, whom is he speaking of? Well, because of his context, he can't possibly be speaking about other cultures in the world because he doesn't know them. Yes. Which is not to deny that those other cultures uh, have some sense of right and wrong. Clearly they do. Yeah. It's just to say Paul has in mind Greco-Roman authors. Right. I think there's no way around it. Right. In, like, in Acts 17, where he's quoting these poets, right. in some ways he's saying, look, you have guys that kind of get it. Yes. Yeah. They even say, in him we live and move and have our being. Right. Which to me is fascinating because when Paul quotes that, it's a reference to Zeus. Paul just co-ops it and says, you know... They're talking about, they think they're talking about Zeus, but they're actually talking about the true God. Yeah. They don't know it, but right. that, that's what they're doing. Right. That's a remarkable, a remarkable event in my mind. Yeah. Or when he uses phrases like, you know, we, we see through a glass darkly, mm -hmm. right? That's, to me, that always reminds me of Plato's cave. Yeah. You know, we're staring at the wall and we need to, to climb up and, and, uh, and uh, remove the, the right. sunglasses. Right? So the strong contrast between appearance and reality. Yes. Things are not what they appear. Exactly. So in, we already mentioned Acts 17, in Acts 28, there's another quite remarkable conjunction of the classical and Christian worlds. So Paul has just been shipwrecked. They have landed with his companions on the island of Malta, mm -hmm. Melita in Latin, and uh, Paul gets bitten by a viper. Right. The viper's clinging to his wrist. Uh, they're gathering some sticks for a fire, you remember. And uh, I guess this viper was hidden in the sticks. And he reaches his hands down and bam, he gets nailed. The viper's clinging to his wrist. It's a highly dramatic moment. Uh, Luke must be describing it in firsthand terms. And the people all around say, ah, he's a murderer. Right? because he escaped death by the sea, judgment by the winds, and now death by viper. He must be a very bad man. Hmm. And, of course, he survives the snake bite, right. and they immediately draw the opposite conclusion. <laughs> he must be a god, right. Right. because right. only a god could survive snake bite. One of the interesting things about that story to me is that Luke doesn't really pause to sermonize. 
right? Hmm. He doesn't pause to say, and then Paul set them all straight and preached this sermon. Some of them became, you know, members of the church and so forth. There is a little bit after that about Paul's ministry on the island, but it's, it's just suggestive. It's not really explicit. In fact, this is all that Luke says. The people expected him, Paul, to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. And then Luke goes on, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official, etc. He moves right to the next thing. Yes, he does. Yeah. And so what's interesting, uh, similar to the Acts 14 passage, what you have is people quick to identify the presence of the gods among them. Mm. Yes. And so to me, that is one of the really fascinating takeaways, as we'll see from the Acts 14 passage. They're not surprised that the gods are down walking among them. No. Um, in fact, Paul, uh, moving through the Romanized world, I would say that even compared to to the Greeks, the Romans saw their world as much more kind of god haunted. Really, you know, every rock, you know, stick and leaf had its own right, its own Newman. Right. Yes. Yes. They uh, seem to have been a little more um, animistic. Yes. Than the Greeks. Right. Although right. the Greeks, you know, could contend with just about anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very In true. that category. Yeah. I mean, throw them both together, and it's yeah, it's it's a god soaked world. Yes, it's very potent. Mm-hmm. So um, last little reference before Acts 14 is Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul breaks out this Epimenides quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the famous liar's paradox. Uh, Paul warns Titus, who is planting churches on Crete and going to be appointing some bishops and so forth in the early church. Paul warns Titus, be careful because all Cretans are liars. And this is a quote from, from where? What is from this the poet from? Epimenides, okay. yeah. the, the philosopher Epimenides. Huh. Uh, and this was turned into a famous paradox, right? If a Cretan tells you all Cretans are liars, what does that mean about the truth of the statement if it's spoken by a Cretan? Ah, yes. Now, we can't digress on that, but it's another interesting example of how Paul was very ready to use some quotation from a classical poet or philosopher to make his point. Mm-hmm. All right, Dave, let's get into Acts 14. And why don't you read a bit of the Greek for us? All right, I'm starting at verse 8. This is the Nestle Allen 28 edition, for those of you who are playing the home game. It goes like this. Kaitisanera dunatos and lustrois tois opossin akatheta, holos ek koili ais metrasa tu, hasu depoter peria patesen, hutas ekusen tu paulu laluntas, hasatena satoka yadon, hati eke piston tu, sothenai, epen megale phone, ana tethi, epitus pora su orthas kai helata kai peria pate. Very nice. Thank Very you. Nice. Are you going to translate that for us? Yes, too? I will. So this is just the beginning. We're not really to the God's part, but I'm going to read uh, verses 8 through 18 to give the whole context. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, that's a really interesting part, yeah. the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations he allowed all he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. That's so interesting. I mean, it's just the detail, you could think, oh, well, you know, just the people in the crowd got, got hyped up and said, the gods are amongst us, but the priests get involved. Yes. They're ready to bring sacrifice. So- well, and that's one of the most interesting interpretive questions about this passage. You know, there are a couple, but one of them is just that. Why did the priest get involved? There's a textual variation. So that's verse 13. Some texts have uh, the plural, the priests, so that there Mm. was a group. This text just has uh, the singular was one priest. So some say, well, you know, he was a true believer. He really thought that uh, there must be Zeus and Hermes. After all, a a lame man was just healed. Yeah. Others, and this is maybe the more uh, dominant position is, well, he saw an economic opportunity. Uh. Well, here's my chance. You know, I'm tired of being marginalized. There's some real power here. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to capitalize on it. So let's uh, gin up a, you know, a a sacrifice as quick as we can. And let's, let's capitalize on this market opportunity. He had the oxen and the garlands ready to go. They were ready. Yep. (laughs) Just break them out of the package and, you know, insta sacrifice. I also, I also, it's quite striking to me as I heard you read that that Paul uses, he says, you know, for God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season. He uses kind of the language of, of Zeus, yes. there, right? You know, the, he uses the language of, of the of the sky, the weather god, mm-hmm. and say, and, but that was a way of kind of pointing the people away from Zeus to the true right. source, right? Right. And the other really interesting part about this episode is the difference in dialect. You know, this is another potential little homework assignment for you eager listeners. Go research the Lycaonian dialect because people know almost nothing about it. (laughs) Uh, There's some suggestion it might have been a a remnant of a Hittite language. Others say, well, it must have been a form of Greek because um, Paul and Barnabas were preaching to them in Greek. So they they had some knowledge, but they had their own peculiar dialect of Lycaonian. Yeah. There may be some sophisticated philologist who's listening and can set us straight on this. Right, right. Uh, But I think that the bottom line is, Nobody knows exactly what Lycaonian was. We know where it was. It was in East Central Asia Minor, Turkey, in in this region where Lystra is. Beyond that, it's really not much known. Right. It's another example of that kind of that wonderful historical precision of Luke. Mm-hmm. Once again, that uh, I mean, he didn't have to throw in that detail, but it, no. it, it, uh, it gives such a color to it's the, so the vivid. passage. Yes. And then in verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, right, another suggestive element is... Uh, they were apparently off the scene by this time. Oh. So they may have been on the oh, outskirts yeah. of the city. They may have been in their homes. It could be that the crowd had started chanting it right away. You know, Zeus and Hermes are here after the healing. But because Paul and Barnabas don't speak Lycaonian, <laughs> they don't know what's being said. <laughs> right, right, Someone right. had to interpret it for them. Mm. And then their response is so dramatic. It's like something out of Euripides, Right. They tear their garments. They rush into the crowd, which is kind of at risk of life and limb. You know, you're taking your life into your own hands. It's like the mosh pit that you used to frequent when you were a young man. Absolutely right. And from time to time, still to this day. Still today. Okay. So they rush down into the crowd and they say, men, why are you doing these things? Yeah. We are of like nature with you. The, The cinema that I see in my mind is that, you know, the sacrifice is about to take place. Yep. And Paul and Bar- Barnabas are horrified by thinking that these, these animals are being sacrificed to us. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's blasphemous. It's terrible. Yeah. Yep. And so then in uh, verse 15, there's this really interesting Greek word, 
homoeopathes, sim- similar suffering, a like character. We have the same passions. Mm. So this is the kind of the hallmark by which uh, Paul tries to prove to the people, you know, we're not divine. We suffer just like you do. We have the same emotions, feelings, and passions, which is partly an appeal, I guess, to the crowd's sense that the gods were higher, um, which is interesting because it's not something we see in the Greco-Roman gods. No. As we've said over and over, they're buffoons, they're buffoons. really. They're more human than human. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One other point we should touch on here before we go to our break and then look at Baucus and Philemon is the mention in verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Paul's doing all the talking. Right. He's, uh, Hermes being the messenger, the, the mouthpiece of Zeus. Yes. Uh, he's tagged as Hermes. Yes. The, the word hermeneutics, the audience probably knows this, yeah. but the word hermeneutics comes from the verb hermeneo, which means to interpret or to translate. And of course, it is based on... Hermes. Right. It's named after the god Hermes. So the act of interpretation, translation, public speaking, that's Hermes province. Yes. And Paul's the chatty one, so he's, he's got to be Hermes. Uh, Barnabas, the stoic, silent one. Right. It's got to be Zeus. Yes. All right. And we're going to get to Ovid's Baucus and Philemon story, which um, will color and refer back to a lot of the stuff we just talked about. But we're going to get to that after the break. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For nearly 50 years, Hackett has been in the game of bringing affordable, high-quality, good-looking translations of classical works to the masses. Oh, yes, Jeff, but it's no game. No game. It's a serious This is a serious business. Mm-hmm. Hackett, with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana, they put out some of the highest quality material for all of your classical needs, and not just classics. They also have philosophy. They have literature from the Reformation, the Renaissance, and later dates. Uh, it's really excellent stuff. It's excellent stuff. I, I like to read them uh, on my own. My students have, have always loved them. Stanley Lombardo's Odyssey translation I've gone back to time and time again. It's just, it's great stuff. Yeah, check out their whole catalog. Definitely. And they have a special offer, don't they? They do. Exclusively for Ad Nauseam listeners. Can you tell them about it, please, Jeff? Yes. Um, if our listeners go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Um, they can scroll through their catalog, and if they type in AN2021 in the coupon code box, they get 20% off, not just that, but also free shipping on yes. anything they order. Again, that's AN2021 for 20% off and free shipping. Check it out. Today's episode is also brought to you by the fine folks at Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Good stuff. Mark Helweg and his team have put together one of the most beautiful coffee machines that you can imagine, dear listener. It's a work of art. The Ratio 6 with its stainless steel carafe and the 8 with its borosilicate hand-blown glass. These are automatic pour-over machines that take all of the mystery out of making a perfect cup of coffee. It's very true. I have the 6. I believe you have the 8 on your yes. counter at home. It outshines any other appliance in the, in the room. Yes, my appliances scuttle away in shame <laughs> when I turn on the Ratio 8. They hide their little appliance faces. Like cockroaches. You're right. Right. I mean, this morning I, I, I fired up the 6 and I had some, I'm not going to mention the coffee that I put okay, in. Okay, fair. But it was, it was discount. Okay. And it, it still tasted great. It's incredible. If I can use the term notes. Oh, yes, it you It brought may. out the notes, even in this cheap coffee. You've got the Fibonacci head that puts the water down into the cone at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. 
there's no burny scorchy pad on the bottom what what's that tend to impart in other machines an awfulness no no what? brackish tang oh brackish tang. where have i been it's a, it's, it's a late night here that's in the a catchphrase that's right, right it imparts the brackish tang but not the ratio six not the ratio eight no every cup of coffee is perfect that bloom stage gets rid of all the all the ugliness gets rid of that tang yes the bloom the brew and then it's ready for you that's right well what how can our listeners benefit well they need to go to ratiocoffee.com r-a-t-i-o coffee Com, and they need to enter this coupon code. What's that code? I'm asking you because I can't remember. <laughs> that code is... A-N-C-O. It's A-N-C-O. ANCO. And they will get 15% off. 15% off the ratio six. The ratio six. Yeah. A fine machine. Check it out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Odd Ostra Roasters. Uh, coffee company out of Hillsdale, Michigan, specialty coffee, veteran owned, uh, just a couple of short hours here from the Vomitorium. Yes, Patrick Whalen and his team, they roast some delicious coffee. They've got Huehuetenango. They have our favorite, which is Tenebris. Are we still on the same page there? Tenebris is still my favorite. Are yours as well? Yes, yes. But yeah. the Huehuetenango with its uh, nutty and fruity notes, delicious coffee. It's growing on me too. Yes, really, really nice. When it arrives in the mail, brings a smile to my face and... Uh, the delicious taste in the cup. Because what we're trying to do here, right, uh, Winkle, is cultivate a certain kind of a lifestyle. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. When you're done with work, you put in your nine to five, you know, you come home, yeah. you, you sit down with a great cup of coffee and a delicious book, and you enjoy some of the finer things in life. That is the way to that is the way to go about things. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So how can our dear listeners score some of this 80% or better on the roaster scale coffee? All they got to do is go to oddastraroasters.com, A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com. Uh, check out their offerings, uh, put in the coupon code ANAA and you get 10% off anything you order and also uh, on monthly subscriptions if you should so desire. Check it out. So as we get back into it now, after that lovely break, we're going to do what the kids today call pivoting. Well, that's what we're doing right now. We're going to pivot. Okay, let's, right? let's pivot. We've got to use fancy buzzwords. We can't just say things in plain language. We're no. going to pivot. we got to be hip to the kids and they got to be hip to us. With our grout fits. We're going to pivot away from Acts 14 to Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 8. Yes. And so this is the, the story that we talked a little bit about at the beginning that's not found in any of the Greek sources. Which is surprising, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Startling because I think Ovid tells something like 245 mythological episodes in this book. Mm-hmm. Just jam-packed. It's jam-packed. And almost every one has some Greek precedent, but not Baucus and Philemon. Right. So that's, that kind of adds to the mystery. Where well, is this coming well, from? What's it doing here? Is there some lost version that just didn't make it uh, through the manuscript tradition? Um, but um, we, we deal with what we got. Yeah. So how is this story framed? How does Ovid set it up? Right. So it's, it's framed as a, a discussion amongst a kind of other mythological heroes about how much power do the gods have? Are they interested in humanity? Are they off doing their own thing? Uh, can we ignore them and live our lives better that way? And that's when this hero by the name of Lelex uh, speaks up. And he says, no, no, no. Uh, the gods have tremendous power. And they're watching all the time. Uh, they're amongst us. And let's hear this little story which illustrates that. Yeah. So they're not distant. They're close. They're close. Okay. Are you going to read a little bit of Ovid's beautiful hexameters here for us? Yes, I will. Go something like this. Haud procol hinc stagnes telus habitabilis olim, nun celebres mergis fulicisque palustribus undae, Jupiter hux pecci e mortali cumque parente, 
winnet Atlantia despositis caducifer alis. Beautiful, Jeff. Nicely, nicely done. So what does that mean? Can you share a translation with us? Yes. Um, this is from A.S. Klein, who we've talked about on the podcast. Yes. Wonderful uh, public domain online translations. Yes. Uh, yeah, check, check, check his stuff out. He translates it thusly. There is a swamp not far from there. Once habitable land, but now the haunt of diving birds and marsh-loving coots. Jupiter went there, disguised as a mortal, and Mercury, the descendant of Atlas, setting aside his wings, went with his father, carrying the caducaeus. Yes. So this is a, a Roman poet, so Jupiter for Zeus and Mercury for Hermes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a comic conceit that's going on here in this episode, right? Yeah. One that we've looked at before. Can you spell that out for the listener a little bit? Right. So Jupiter and Mercury in this tale, they're going around more or less kind of testing the morality of humanity. And it strikes me as strange. There's not a lot of... Uh, I mean, one of the reasons we don't find this in the, amongst the Greek sources, that's not a very Greek thing. I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, it's... To test the morality of mortals? Mortals, it, it's, it strikes me as... As more of kind of a, you know, Ovid running under Caesar Augustus, more of a kind of a Roman thing at this time. Hmm. It, I'm at a loss for examples that would contradict your point. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like that the Zeus of, of the Greeks would be all that interested in that kind of thing. But Well, you do have individuals like Pan showing up at various times, but they're more in... Uh, those instances seemed more inclined to try to direct the course of human yes. action than to serve as a diagnostic of human morality. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the Greek myths are filled with examples of gods in disguise, but not for this particular purpose. Right. That's, that's what just kind of strikes me as, as it's odd. It's a good point. Yeah. But in terms of the comic conceit, so Jupiter and Mercury, they're going around and uh, going door to door and uh, kind of seeing how they're being treated by the locals. And it's the rich folks that are slamming the door in their faces. Uh, but then they come to this humble cottage in which this couple, Baucus and her husband uh, Philemon, live. Mm-hmm. And they open the doors wide, and they take them in and treat them as honored guests, though they've never seen these people before in their lives. So and it's it, interesting, if I may, the, the, yeah. the diagnostic tool which the gods use to gauge morality is hospitality. Yes, Zinnia. Yes, the, the, it's not something like, uh, I don't know, it just came into my mind that that episode in Les Mis where I think, I don't know if he's Jean Valjean at the time, but he demonstrates that he's a heroic character because he lifts up the cart on his oh, massive yeah. shoulders and it's about to crush someone underneath. But he shows this great rescue of a, a endangered, you know, weaker person. Mm-hmm. And that shows his great morality. Um, this is a different kind of a diagnostic of morality, it's hospitality. Is someone going to give you something to eat, something to drink, and a place to sit beside the fire? So it's really simple. Mm-hmm. There's nothing heroic about it on the surface, but it does constitute morality for the culture. Right, and we're, um, we're right back to Odysseus in Eumaeus' yes. hut. It's the same thing. It's Zinnia. Yep. So Philemon and Baucus, they, they've got very little. They've got nothing. They're very poor. In fact, one of my favorite aspects of this story is where Ovid, in a comic way, describes the old woman, Baucus, chasing the goose. It's <laughs> my favorite part. Around the farmyard <laughs> because they have no good food to feed to Zeus and Hermes, right? They, they huddle together. What are we going to give them? You know, uh, Ritz crackers and you know maybe some slices of American cheese from out of the crisper drawer or something like that. Uh-huh. No, we got to give them something good. Tuna? No, that's not going to cut it. So he sends her out into the farmyard. Once you catch that goose, we'll slaughter that goose. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's it's, it's great stuff. Guests show up at your door, Winkle. What are what are you and Mrs. Winkle going to serve them? 
well, I mean, usually when guests show up at our door, they're trying to sell me something. <laughs> Those aren't or, guests. Or, or uh, they want to, they want to give me an estimate on how to repaint my house. Yeah, and, new windows. A, maybe. But you're, you're, those aren't guests, right? No, no. I got, I got Twizzlers. What would you break out? Twizzlers. Twizzlers and maybe some, um, maybe some off-brand root beer. Yeah, yeah. Something like that would probably work. <laughs> I might be reading into this too much, but my sense is that yes, Baucus and Philemon are moral because. It doesn't matter who comes to their door, and they're going to they're going to be generous. But there's also kind of the sense that they, I think they get on some level that these are not ordinary guests. There is a suggestion of that. They get a kind of a sense of, of the divine, even if they couldn't put their finger on it. Well, it's reminiscent of the quote from Hebrews, where the author of the Hebrews uh, is telling, you know, believers practice hospitality because some have entertained angels. Oh yeah, unawares, right, not right. knowing it. So Baucus and Philemon seem to have the sense that these two individuals look like ordinary travelers, but perhaps they're not. Right. So they serve them, this is really touching, they serve them simple country rustic fare. Cabbage, what they have on hand, very traditional Roman food. They catch the Christmas goose, they try to. And then there's even a part about how the table isn't really level. So Philemon folds a napkin up and slides it underneath one of the legs. So, you know, you've done this, haven't you? At a pizza joint. Yeah. I did that recently on vacation. The table's, you know, tottering back and forth. We've got to fix that. Yeah. Or like at my house, when most of your furniture comes from Goodwill, (laughs) you're you're constantly shoving the napkins under there. (laughs) They also talk about Philemon's got some meat. Up in the rafters. Ovid says, yeah, he's yes. got some stuff hanging up there. Hanging up there. So, and uh, it's it's a chine. Did hmm. we talk about the chine in one episode? Probably. Right. It's a pork back. It's a pork back, right? This was back way, way, way back in one of the Iliad episodes. But you know, when you have one hanging from the rafters, you know what you call it. It's a wind chine. <laughs> I've been I've been waiting a week to drop that's that. That's awful. That's terrible. I know. It sounds, it sounds worse now. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, it's bad. So humble hospitality in this little country rustic hut. Yes. And then Zeus and, and Hermes or Jupiter and Mercury, they, they kind of make it known kind of who they are. As they're leaving, they reveal their identity and they tell this old couple that they're going to destroy all of the surrounding neighborhood because of the lack of hospitality. Exactly. They've received no Zania. They're going to flood the entire place. Mm-hmm. But they're going to rescue this old couple. And they offer them a reward or a prize. They request to be stewards of their temple. Yes. And that request is granted, but they are uh, transformed into trees. I think it's the lime tree and the oak tree. And the lime and the oak apparently love to grow together. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, I didn't know I, that. I've never tested this. Can't prove it. <laughs> uh, it's like the guy who learned that the crow lives to be 200 years old. So he goes out into the woods and he gets a crow and brings it home. And his neighbors say, what are you doing with that crow in your house? I hear that they live to be 200 years old and I'm just going to test it. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> it's, the same thing. it's a Greek, old Greek fable. Right. So the, the lime and the oak, they love to grow in tandem and they are entwined in each other's branches. So they are transformed, Baucus and Philemon. Here's the metamorphosis. Yes, by the power of of Zeus into a lime tree and an oak tree. And they stand guard over the temple of Zeus and they grow together. I started this discussion of this passage about um, what I thought was not very Greek about it. But this is a very Greek thing. That also reminds me of um, Cleobus and Baiton. Yes. And so they, they take their mother... They, they, they pick up the cart and drag their mother. Right, and, the deadly wish motif. Right, the, yes, right. And so they, or the, the mixed blessing kind of. The mixed blessing. And, and so they're rewarded with dying. Eternal sleep. Eternal sleep at the height of their glory. Yes. Right. The beautiful death, the, uh, what is it, the, the Thanatos Colossus. Yes. That's what they get. Are there other examples of gods in disguise testing uh, mortals? I, would, I mean, not exactly 
again, not in this this way of kind of testing the moral character of humanity, but it reminds me of Athena in the Odyssey disguises herself as mentor uh, to kind of feel out what's happening in the household, right? And and kind of in testing Telemachus to some degree. Yes. Yeah. Maybe also Aeneid Book One when um, Venus appears disguised as a nymph of Diana. Venus appears to her son Aeneas to try to guide him on his quest into, oh, yeah. into Carthage. But there, like you say, it's not a test of his morality. It's a test of, in some ways, his sagacity. Is he going to be able to recognize her and who she is? Exactly. So it's a thin disguise. Yes, right. But it's not a test. And there's a similar story of, of Dionysus when he's on the pirate ship and the pirates want to take him and throw him overboard and the helmsman is the one, eh, you might want to keep your hands off this guy. So he gets it. Right. He sees the, div- the, the, the divinity uh, just beneath the cloak. Right. Yeah. So in addition to the Acts 14 passage that we've talked about, which is a, a fascinating parallel, mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of other places in the scriptures where we see a similar phenomenon take place. Right. Um, I mean, speaking of a flood. Yes. Right? So um, Jupiter and Mercury, or Jupiter, destroys this this town with a flood. It reminds me very much of, of the Noah account. Yeah, right? Genesis 6 or thereabouts. So Noah and his family are the only righteous ones who survive this the, this destruction. So again, the morality has been tested of, of humanity and it's been found wanting. And there has to be a consequence. There has to be a consequence. Right? Yeah, and later in the book of Genesis as well, there's the famous visit of the angelic creatures, two of them, uh, to the house of Lot, mm-hmm. uh, where he's living uh, in Sodom. And uh, it's a test of hospitality. Yes. And so Lot... And another doomed place. Yes. So Lot and his family offer hospitality, and the rest of the town apparently does not. And so they they pull them out of there, and destruction reigns. Yeah. Uh, not, a, not a watery destruction, but a different kind. And that makes me wonder of... of uh, these, these kinds of connections might explain why the Baucus and Philemon story maybe survived better in other media, in art... Um, by later uh, kind of Christian artists. You mean after Ovid? After well, after Ovid, yes. you know, kind of well into the um, the Renaissance and post Renaissance. There's lots of, of versions of the Bacchus and Philemon story, and I wonder it's because it's it's so reflective of uh, of these you know Christian principles. Yes. So again, to to go right back to the beginning of the episode and touch a little bit on a couple of those interpretive issues, there's no evidence, and it's not plausible that Luke was copying Ovid. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that people in Palestine were reading Ovid. That's, yes. And unlike, say, Shakespeare 400 years later, these kinds of stories were not in the air yet. Exactly. So, you know, the, the notion that, that Luke is cribbing from Ovid is, you know, highly implausible, and I think it's false. So what explains the remarkable similarity? Well, I think that those geographical details are so, are so fascinating. I mean, there's, there's evidence that suggests that this story wasn't just a story floating around it, but it um, had particular relevance for this particular area. I mean, in Ovid's version, he, he um, Lelix, the guy telling the story, he claims to have seen the famous trees that mm-hmm. Bacchus and Philemon turned into. In the, uh, near, near the city of Tyana, right? Yeah. And that I, that I, that's a detail that strikes me that, you know, there likely were trees that were you know, traditionally said that this is these people, this is the story behind them. Right. They actually believed it. So it's that kind of that specific geographic um, location and the fact that um, the Acts 14 story takes place in, in Lystra because right in the, that central area of Anatolia. It's just one bus stop over. It, one bus stop over. Um, that's That can't be a coincidence. No. So I think, the, to my mind, the best explanation, and the listener is encouraged to test this, do your own research, see what you find, is that the people of that area were especially inclined to believe in the visitation of 
Jupiter and uh, Mercury or Zeus and Hermes. Right. And, and the, the priests too. Yes. Yeah. And so that, you know, that credulity about this event means that when Paul and Barnabas show up, they say, well, this is what we've been expecting all along. <laughs> yeah. And then the miracle that's performed is just a, you know, overwhelms their senses. Yeah. They say, and they're not wrong about this. They say, we have witnessed something of the divine here. This, this is remarkable. Now, you know, to the, the mind of Paul and Barnabas, they draw the wrong conclusion. They credit the wrong gods mm-hmm. with the miracle. Uh, but they're so ready to believe about some kind of appearance of the gods among them. Mm-hmm. To me, that's fascinating and, and marks them as so unlike moderns, right? Yes. Because we are so disinclined to believe, at least we say we are, in anything supernatural. Right. Now, you did you did impart some cynicism uh, on the part of the priests, right? He, he saw well, that's a common interpretation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he didn't really believe it, Zeus and Hermes. Mm-hmm. Maybe he thinks, here's a, an opportunity to cash in. Yeah. Because if I, you know, can sell some animals for sacrifice and I can, I can uh, co-opt them into my temple, I can charge a nice fee, yeah. you know, to dispense these religious mysteries. And we can eat some meat. Exactly. Some barbecue, <laughs> barbecue. at long last. <laughs> right, right. So that's certainly possible. Now, Jeff, there are some lovely visual representations of this myth mm-hmm. from Ovid in painters like Rubens, Rembrandt, uh, Von Oost. Uh, we're going to put these in the show notes, right? We are. Yes, we promise. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I mean, the story shows up. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne adapted uh, the story in, in one of his books. It was um, uh, a theme in operas. Uh, Shakespeare himself references Balkas and Philemon. Yeah. So it's got its fingerprints all over the Renaissance and post-Renaissance in, in various media. But it has never been adapted to a sitcom, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it, but the, the goose part could be hilarious. You think so? Yeah. It could be a recurring character. <laughs> Because they never quite catch it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just taunting them outside the window. I think it would be a little bit like one of your favorite sitcoms. Which is? MASH. Oh, I hate MASH. (laughs) Have we talked about this? Not on the air. Not on the air yet. We're going to do a whole episode, though, on MASH, maybe a series. Really? You hate MASH as much as I hate Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) We should, those two go head to head in some kind of way? Well, I don't know how we could do that, Jeff. But before we wrap up, we have to make our big announcement. Yes, our big announcement, Dave, drop it on us. Well, as of uh, the end of the summer, I am leaving brick-and-mortar academia and going fully digital. I'm going to be a fully online digital instructor. So what does that mean for our audience? Well, it means that the kinds of courses and experiences that they have been enjoying through my other channels, the Latin per DM channel with the daily Latin lessons in four minutes or less, the Moss method with the, the Greek experience, these are going to be ramped up significantly. I'm going to come out in front of the camera and start teaching you in a more direct and personal way. That, that's my ambition. So we've built some of these relationships over the last five to six years. I want to build new relationships and deepen the existing ones. So new stuff coming. New stuff. We're going to try to put together travel tours. So Jeff, this is something you and I have wanted to do for a long time. Very true. Aiming for May of 2022. The ad nauseum trip to Greece. I'm very excited. Yep. You're going to be able to travel with Jeff and me, see all of the sights, enjoy our antics, and of course, take a break from them from time to time. <laughs> but ad nauseum is going to become a viewer experience, Jeff. That's right. We have, we're going to get a new new digs, a new a vomitorium east. That's right. Yeah. And it's uh, going to have good lighting, good quality audio, and you can watch our antics from the comfort of your living room, your kitchen, or any other rooms in your house where you may want to consume this content. And and visual gags. Visual gags. Running visual gags. Well, I intend to be seated most of the time. I'm talking about the goose. Okay. (laughs) 
So if you would like to help us with this, here's our, uh, here's our request. We're not looking for a handout. No sense of entitlement. We're very, very grateful for what you as the listeners have done. But if you have benefited and you would like to show your appreciation for any of our previous work, including my Latin per diem stuff, you can go to our GoFundMe and make a small contribution to help us with some of these startup costs. Where can the listeners find that? The, the GoFundMe. Well, the GoFundMe will be included in the link to this podcast. Okay. But it's basically just GoFundMe and then look for Latin Per Diem Launch. Gotcha. Latin Per Diem Launch or my name, David Noe. They'll find it right there. So this is going to cover things like cameras and audio and background and so forth. And we're going to try to uh, really up our game here and bring the the listener, you know, turn them into a viewer and give them a more immersive and enjoyable experience as well as lots of online instruction. Yeah, so big thanks to the viewers who have taken the, taken us this far. Yeah, we're so grateful. Yeah, uh, hundreds, thousands of downloads, and uh, Dave and I are really ex- excited about taking this to another level. Yeah, last week was a record. It was just stunning. More than a thousand downloads of our show. People are catching on and catching up, like you said. Right. It's really gratifying. So as we get out of here, we want to thank our sound engineer, Miss Mishka Fernando, doing a great job. Thanks, Mishka, and also uh, to Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen for the great music that you uh, hear. The, ripping stuff. At the beginning and at the end of the podcast. Just wonderful. And so, listeners, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, go to your favorite platform, leave a review. If you want to get in touch with us, just uh, shoot us a note at dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to me, jeff at adnauseum.com. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Give us some ideas for uh, future episodes. Um, Shout-outs as well. Shout-outs, yeah. This is how you get mentioned on the program and get your 30 seconds of very minor fame. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, do it. We'd love to hear from you. Dave, what's on tap for next week? Next week, we're going to have another Pauline episode. Yes. And this time we're bringing in our dear friend, a uh, former colleague, a uh, former teacher of both of us, Dr. Ken Bratt. Yes, former mentor. Yes, yeah. uh, just an amazing man. And uh, he's an emeritus professor now, and he's an expert on archaeology. Yes. So he's going to give us the archaeology of the city of Philippi. I can't wait. This so, is going to be great. Right. Paul in Philippi. You're not going to want to miss this. Jeff, you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years, from Napoleon Dynamite. Ah, here we go. Yeah, and I'm going to do this in my best Napoleon voice. You're going to eat your dots? Thanks for listening. (laughs)